1: Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com slash bluewire. That's harrys.com slash Wire for a $3 trial set.
2: And away we go, episode 93 of the Al Galdi podcast, the Jonathan Allen episode. I could have gone with Philip Daniels. Either one works. Each guy, a no-nonsense team first guy. Two of my favorite players in recent Washington history. A far cry from episode 92, in which we were choosing from the likes of Albert Hainsworth and Stacey McGee. Thank goodness that we have passed that. It is Monday, June 28th, 2021. Yes, we're just days away from July. Thursday is July 1st. Washington football team training camp begins four weeks from Tuesday. Time is flying, my friends, and so are we. It is good to have you with us on what is day one of a special week. It is vacation week. Yes, I am on vacation this week. Vacation, Galdi? Well, then why are you doing a show? Ah, Good question. Because I can't not do any shows. I can never just not do this show for a whole week. The movement that is the Al Galdi podcast commands, demands, constant content. You people have appetites that are insatiable. And so what I have decided to do for this week is, instead of taking the whole week off, to do three episodes. So Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Or as an English teacher, I used to have used to say Monday, Wednesday, Friday, however you want to say them, three days. And yes, normally this podcast is five days per week, Monday through Friday, out each weekday by 5 a.m. This week, quote unquote, vacation week, three days in the week, whatever days that I'm going to take off this summer, I basically need to do now. Because once Washington football team training camp starts on July 27th, it is on. It is so on. So I'll take a few days off this week, and then probably the week of the MLB All-Star game, I'll take a few days off. I'm not sure yet if I'll be doing a show for next Monday, July 5th. I'll see about that. But this week, I am doing shows Monday, Wednesday, Friday. So do not be alarmed come Tuesday and Thursday morning when you do not see a new installment of the podcast. Although, if something big happens on Monday or Wednesday, I will do a show for the next day. So if Washington trades for Aaron Rodgers on Monday, expect a show on Tuesday. Anyway, hope that all makes sense. In the meantime, and in between time, we have a lot to discuss on this installment of the podcast. A very mixed weekend for the Nationals, what ends up being a four-game split at the Miami Marlins. Could have been worse, but coulda and shoulda been better. There's a lot to talk about with that series. Talk about it, we shall, next segment, including something that came out on Friday from Max Scherzer's agent, Scott Boris. I will talk Washington football team with you coming up. Morgan Moses reportedly is joining the New York Jets. Ron Rivera releasing Moses in large part because Ron really believes in a rookie in Samuel Cosme. That whole scenario reminds me a lot of a situation from last year I want to make that parallel and explore how often Washington is right in parting ways with guys. In other words, this fear that some have that Washington will regret releasing Moses, how often has that happened recently? Washington regretting parting ways with a player because that used to be a thing, right? Washington cutting ties with a guy and then that guy killing it elsewhere. You know, Brad Johnson, Antonio Pierce, Ryan Clark, Etc. Well, things have changed quite a bit. A thorough breakdown with some scheduled fun mixed in is forthcoming. The Wizards, their head coaching search continues as other head coaching vacancies are getting filled. Who should you be wanting as the Wizards next head coach? I know who I want. And I'll talk Orioles as well. They lost three of four to the Toronto Blue Jays in Buffalo, but did not lose four of four, meaning that the franchise record road losing streak ended. And the Orioles again in the win column. Yes, Joe Angel, exactly. You can tweet me at algaldi, you can email me the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Email from David B. I'm not sure if this is something you've talked about yet on the podcast, but I just learned that Garfield Senior High School in Woodbridge, Virginia has changed the school's mascot from the Garfield Indians to the Garfield Redwolves. It looks like a local high school had no problems creating a committee, selecting four finalists based on fan and alumni feedback, and then acquiring the name Red Wolves while we're struggling to even trademark a name that's not really even a name. I've loved Red Wolves as our new name since I heard Fred Smoot bring it up last year. It makes sense in so many ways. I'm just curious how this high school was able to secure the rights to use the name if Arkansas State University Has the name trademarked? And does that mean the name Red Wolves is out of the question for the Washington football team? By the way, congrats on the success of the podcast. Well, thank you, David. I appreciate that. So I was not aware of Garfield Senior High School having become the Red Wolves until I read your email. I know that Arkansas State, at least previously, had been very protective of Red Wolves. My best guess would be that Arkansas State doesn't want to bully a high school in Woodbridge. Even capitalism has its limits. But of course, the Washington football team isn't Garfield Senior High School. All due respect to Garfield Senior High School. So I can't imagine Arkansas State playing super nice with the Washington football team. But you know what? If Dan Snyder wants Red Wolves bad enough, and I'm not sure that he does, but if he does, he'll pay what it takes. He'll make whatever deal he has to make. Because in the long run, there's no price that's too much for the right name. Well, if Danny needs help negotiating with Arkansas State, I know who he should call John Grandland of Real Broker. I'm sure John would have some tips, but of course, John Grandland, aka John G, does his best work in real estate. If you need to sell your home or have been trying to sell your home and just aren't satisfied with how things are going or you're just thinking about selling your home, contact my guy, John Grandland, a.k.a. John G. And understand, whereas Ron Rivera has position flex, John Grandland has commission flex.
0: Position flex.
2: Yes, Ron, you have position flex. John G. has commission flex. What is commission flex, you ask? It's actually very simple. Not every house requires the same amount of work or money spent marketing, so why should you pay the same fees? There should be flexibility when it comes to the commission. It's never made sense that everyone has to pay the same flat rate. If your house is going to sell in six minutes, you shouldn't have to pay 6%. Let John Grandlin put a marketing plan together for you that will maximize your home's value and help you keep more of your hard-earned equity in your pocket. John Grandlin has a menu of commission packages that you can choose from, including selling your home for free. Yes, you heard that right. For free, some conditions do apply, but interviewing John Granlin is an absolute no-brainer. He can come by your house and give you a step-by-step plan on what to do to get top dollar, and maybe even more importantly, what not to do so you don't spend needlessly, and there is never any obligation to list or sell. Do yourself a favor and call John Grandlin. He will sell your home guaranteed. That's right, guaranteed. He guarantees a sale of your home. Call John G. now at 703-537-6747. Make sure you tell him that Al Galdi sent you and that you want to hear more about what you heard about on the Al Galdi podcast. The Commission Flex, that phone number again is 703-537-6747 or visit johngsellsforfree.com. That's johngsellsforfree.com. John Grandlin, nobody will do a better job of selling your home. And remember, he is the master of commission flex. Position flex. That's right, Ron. You have position flex. John G has commission flex. As the great Gordon Gecko said in the all-time great movie Wall Street, greed is good. The Nationals needed to be greedy in their four-game series at the lowly Miami Marlins, really needed to win three out of four. The Nats, after losing games two and three, were in danger of losing three out of four. But thankfully, disaster was averted via a 5-1 win at the Marlins on Sunday afternoon. You really would have preferred for the Nats to have won three of the four games in the series, but you can live with a four-game split. The Nats now have won 11 of the team's last 14 games, heading into a big seven-game homestand now against the New York Mets, Tampa Bay Rays, and Los Angeles Dodgers. Now, the Mets lost at home to the Philadelphia Phillies 4-2, on Sunday afternoon. The Atlanta Braves won at the Cincinnati Reds 4-0 on Sunday afternoon. The Nats now are 37-38, four games behind the National League East leading Mets, a game ahead of the Braves and Phillies for second. It was a mixed series for the Nats offensively, and truth be told, the Nats offense struggled over the final three games, especially struggled in the two losses in the series, but the Nats offense really wasn't that good even in the game four win. So the 11-2 loss at the Miami Marlins on Friday night. Nats in that game scored just two runs, totaled just eight hits, seven of which were singles, worked just two walks, struck out 11 times, and went one for five with runners in scoring position. The Marlins starter, Pablo Lopez, two runs in six innings, nine strikeouts. Then came the 3-2 loss at the Marlins on Saturday. The Nats in that game scored just two runs, totaled just seven hits, worked just three walks, struck out 13 times, went one for nine, with runners in scoring position. The Marlins starter in that game was Zach Thompson, who was making just his fourth major league start. He allowed two runs in six innings with 11 strikeouts. And it's not like Zach Thompson is some phenom. I mean, maybe he ends up being a good starting pitcher, but Zach Thompson was taken by the Chicago White Sox in the fifth round of the 2014 MLB draft. Now, Nats did win on Sunday afternoon, yes, 5-1, was the final. The Nats did score five runs. You like that. The Nats did hit two, two-run homers. You like that. But the Nats finished the game with just six hits to go with four walks, went one for five, with runners in scoring positions. So we are back to the Nationals' offense being a problem. Not that that ever really went away, but the Nats were seemingly busting out. I mean, the Nats, over a two-game stretch at the end of that stretch of 10 wins in 11 games, totaled 20 runs. So you felt like, hey, maybe just maybe this offense is going to end up being better. That still is a possibility. But right now, we're back to the way things have been for most of the season with the offense. The two offensive heroes for the Nets in the win on Sunday were Trey Turner and Josh Bell. Turner went one for four with a two-run homer. He smashed a two-run opposite field home run to right center field in a four-run that six. The homer went a projected 400 feet per stat cast, but the homer was just Turner's second homer since games beginning on May 18th. His power really has dried up over the last month and a half or so and Turner grounded into another double play on Sunday afternoon grounded into a first pitch 6-4-3 double play for the first two outs in the top of the third that's now nine double plays hit into by Trey Turner this season he hit into 10 double plays all of the 2019 regular season and just seven double plays all of the 2018 regular season both Turner and Juan Soto have hit into a bunch of double plays so far this year. Turner in the 11-2 loss at the Marlins on Friday night had a single on an 0-2 pitch and a stolen base in the Nats' two-run third, but he hit into a double play in that game. A 6-4-3 double play for the first two outs and the top of the first. It's an odd thing because Trey Turner is obviously fast, but you know what? He may not be quite as fast as he used to be. And you're seeing this with all these double plays that he's hitting into, And the other thing, too, is sometimes a guy can be really fast, but Trey Turner is asked to play a ton. I mean, Trey Turner never doesn't play unless he's hurt. Davey Martinez has Trey Turner out there game in and game out. And I do wonder if maybe there is some wear and tear starting to show here with Trey Turner to where, you know, he's not necessarily busting it every single time he hits a ground ball because he just can't afford to do that because he's out there. So freaky much. Uh, Turner was an at starting shortstop and number two batter in all four games in the series. He only went three of 15. Did have the homer. Had two singles. Worked three walks. Also committed two errors as well. And then Josh Bell. He had a big two-run homer on Sunday afternoon. A two-run opposite field homer on a bomb to left center field in the Nats four-run six inning. The home run going a projected 419 feet per stat cast. Good to see Bell do that. He's been better lately and Bell battled through an injury scare over these last few days. Bell was scratched from starting what ended up being the 7-3 Nats win at the Marlins on Thursday night due to his right side bothering him. He on Friday underwent an MRI exam, which came back clean. Very good news there. So Bell ended up being the Nats starting first baseman and number four batter in each of the final two games in the series. Kyle Schwarber. His incredible tear continued in game two of the series, though things have calmed down for all over these last two games. So when we last talked Nationals on the last installment of the Al Galdi podcast, we discussed what Schwarber did in that 7-3 win at the Marlins on Thursday night, two for four with two more home runs, a walk, four RBI Schwarber hitting the two home runs off the Marlins starter, Cody Poteet, who likely is still having nightmares about Kyle Schwarber. Well, Schwarber in the 11-2 loss at the Marlins on Friday night, three for four with a homer and two singles. And the homer was something else. A leadoff homer in the Nats, two-run third on a bomb to the second deck in right field. The homer going a projected 420 feet per stat cast with Schwarber's 13th homer in 14 games tied for the second most home runs in a 14-game span since the start of the 1901 season, and Schwarber's 13 homers tied Bryce Harper's 13 in May 2015 for the most homers by a Nats player in a month since the franchise came to D.C. Now, like I said, things have calmed down for Schwarber over these last two games. 3-2 loss at the Marlins on Saturday, 0-4 for 4 with a walk, and three strikeouts. This 5-1 win at the Marlins on Sunday afternoon, 0-3 with a walk. Uh, Schwarber, though, he is the leadoff man every game now, and he should be, a leadoff batter, starting left fielder in all four games. Josh Harrison had a good series at the Marlins. I did want to credit him. Harrison was an ad starting second baseman in all four games in the series. He went 6-15, of 15 with a double and five singles. Harrison got off to a great start to this season. Then his numbers really cratered. And now he's been a bit better here lately. And like I said, he had a nice run here over these four games at the Marlins. Sunday afternoon, he was actually the number five batter. Two for four with a couple of singles, including an RBI single. Harrison had a two-out RBI single to right field with runners at the corners and the top of the first and a first-pitch single and the Nats' four-run six inning. It was a shame that Josh Harrison's two hits on Saturday didn't lead to more. He in that 3-2 loss went two for four with a double and a single. The double was a leadoff double in the top of the seventh. The single was a leadoff single in the top of the ninth, but Harrison did not score in either inning because the Nationals offense was mostly really bad in that game on Saturday. Uh, Juan Soto, he had a good series, but he still has not homered in like forever. Uh, Juan Soto was an ad starting right fielder and number three batter in all four games, four for 15 with three RBI doubles, a single, and two walks. So there are definitely some things to like there, but he did not hit a home run. Juan Soto has not hit a home run since June 9th. His peculiar season continues. He is getting on base, he is playing really well defensively in right field, but he is hitting for such little power, especially by Juan Soto standards. Juan Soto now on the season has an on-base percentage of 399. You love that, but he has a slugging percentage of just 426. Get this, Josh Bell's slugging percentage on the season is appreciably better than Juan Soto's. For all of Josh Bell's struggles, he does have 11 homers and he is slugging 444. I mean, that's nothing special, but that's better than the 426 slugging percentage being put forth by Juan Soto so far this year. We keep saying, well, he's better than this, and of course he is, but we continue to not see him be better than this in terms of the power production. Uh, Soto in the 5-1 win on Sunday afternoon at the Marlins, one for three with a single into walk. He had a one-out five-pitch walk in the Nats' one run first. He had a single in the Nats' four run six. Like I said, he had three RBI doubles in the series, including a one-out first-pitch opposite field RBI double to left center field in the top of the first in the 3-2 loss on Saturday. But where are the home runs for Soto? Where are the home runs for Ryan Zimmerman? Boy, have his numbers come crashing down in recent weeks. Zimmerman was an ad starting first baseman and cleanup batter in games 1 and 2 in the series. He served as a pinch hitter in games 3 and 4. He, over the four games, went 1 for 10, with an RBI single and a walk. So Zimmerman's slugging percentage now for the season has fallen by 101 points since the start of games on June 11th. His slugging percentage has gone from 590 to 489. And like I said, that's just since the start of games on June 11th. As we speak on this Monday, it is June 28th. June 11th wasn't that long ago, and yet Zimmerman's numbers have come tumbling down. Victor Robles, another guy who really has issues right now. Starting center fielder in games 1, 2, and 4 in the series. He went hitless over the series. 0 for 7. Did have three walks. Did get hit by a pitch. He's getting on base at a nice clip this season. Robles' on-base percentage is 344, but that's about the only thing he's doing well offensively this year. His batting average is a putrid 223. His slugging percentage is an atrocious 304. Davey Martinez had Robles back to batting in the number nine spot on Sunday. First time in a while we've seen that. I can't stand that. I've talked about that many times. This is a classic case of managers overthinking things when managers bat hitters in nine spots and pitchers in eight spots. That almost always lowers your run expectancy. A lot of research has been done into this. You know, the idea with Davey as well, have Robles act as like a second leadoff batter because Kyle Schwarber's doing so well. And maybe that allows for more RBI opportunities for Schwarber. It doesn't play out that way. And here's the other thing. It makes the pitcher bat more often than you want. And it inevitably brings the pitcher up in some big spots, as was the case on Sunday. Alex Avila got intentionally walked during the Nationals' four-run six inning, the Marlins put Avila on base to get to Max Scherzer, who was batting in that eighth spot. Max came up with runners at the corners, hit into a 4-6-3 double play for the second and third outs. And I know that it was close at first base and Max hustled down the line. Whatever, it was still a double play. So what a buzzkill to that big inning, a four-run six inning, but because the pitcher's coming up in the eighth spot, Avila gets intentionally walked. Max grounds into an inning-ending double play. I can't stand when Davey does this. Bats the pitcher in the eight spot. But there's a larger point here, and that is Victor Robles has been really bad offensively this year. He's been quite good defensively, but he is struggling mightily offensively. He remains without a home run on the season. And now he's banged up, by the way, on that hit-by-pitch that he incurred, uh, which was on Sunday afternoon. He suffered a right knee contusion. So his status for this makeup game on Monday against the Mets is at least somewhat In question. Now, I mentioned Max. He was the Nats' starting pitcher on Sunday, and he did what an ace is supposed to do stop a losing streak. The ace, the Max Scherzer of Area Doctors, is Dr. George Verghese, the medical director for the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland. He's a board-certified dermatologist and Mohs surgeon. The Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland focuses on medical dermatology and skin cancer diagnosis and comprehensive care, including something very special and cutting-edge, superficial radiation therapy, or SRT. SRT is an alternative to surgical procedures for basal cell and squamous cell skin cancers. SRT is revolutionary. It's a non-surgical skin cancer treatment that's safe and effective. You see, having skin cancer doesn't mean having to have surgery and the downtime and side effects that go with surgery. You have options. Understand that a non-surgical option in SRT is available. Dr. George Verghese in the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland offer SRT, unlike many other dermatology practices in the area, and SRT is covered by most insurances. To find out more, call 301 396 3401. Make sure you tell them that Al Galdi sent you. That phone number again, 301-396-3401, or visit midAtlanticskin.com. That's midatlanticskin.com. Dr. George Verghese in the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland, nationally recognized for treating skin cancer across the Mid-Atlantic region. So yes, Max Scherzer, he was the Nats starting pitcher in their 5-1 win at the Miami Marlins on Sunday afternoon. And he was good. He just didn't last for very long for a second consecutive outing. He allowed one run in six innings on seven strikeouts, gave up five hits, two walks, and a hit by pitch. Threw 102 pitches, 70 strikes versus 32 balls. The five hits were triple, a double, and three singles. So he only lasts for the six innings in large part because he throws 100-plus pitches. This was similar to what happened in Max's last outing, that 3-2 win at the Philadelphia Phillies this past Tuesday night. In fact, in that game, Max lasted for just five innings due to throwing 106 pitches. But he was good in that game, one run in five innings on eight strikeouts. Now, this outing for Max on Sunday afternoon, just his second start since coming off the 10-day injured list, which he was on from June 15th, retroactive, to June 12th, to June 22nd with groin inflammation. So perhaps the groin is still at least somewhat of an issue, causing him to not be as pitch efficient as you would like. But it's all relative with Max. He still was good on Sunday afternoon, although things didn't start off so well. He gave up a run in the bottom of the first on a leadoff triple by Jazz Chisholm Jr. and a one-out RBI double by Jesus Aguilar. That was the only run that Max ended up allowing, but he did put some guys on base. Scoreless bottom of the second came, despite Max giving up a leadoff hit by pitch to Jesus Sanchez, and a one-out single to John Birdie, despite him having been down in the count at 1.02. Max tossed a scoreless bottom of the fourth, despite giving up back-to-back two-out singles to Jorge Alfaro and John Birdie, who then stole second base. Birdie, by the way, was all over the place in this series. Max tossed a scoreless bottom of the sixth, despite giving up a leadoff five-pitch walk of Garrett Cooper and a one-out five-pitch walk of Jesus Sanchez. Max, though, then struck out Jorge Alfaro on five pitches and John Birdie on nine pitches. So overall, good stuff from Max Scherzer in this outing on Sunday afternoon. And speaking of Max, did you happen to catch this on Friday? Cubs insider Gordon Wittenmeyer of NBC Sports Chicago on Friday reported that Max's agent, none other than Scott Boris, said that the only way that Max will waive His full no trade rights as a 10-5 player in this 2021 contract season will be if he agrees on a contract extension with the team that is trading for him. Now, many of you listening probably know this in case you don't. A 10-5 player is a player who has accrued 10 years of major league service time and has spent the past five consecutive years with the same team. Players who meet that criteria are awarded what are called 10 and 5 rights. Under these circumstances, a player can veto any trade scenario involving him that is proposed. So you essentially get a no trade clause in your contract if you're a 10 and 5 guy, as Max Scherzer is. It's very interesting, although certainly not surprising, that Boris put this out there into the public sphere. I don't think Max Scherzer is wanting to be traded I don't think the Nationals want to trade Max Scherzer. My whole point with trading Max Scherzer has always been if the Nats are a bad team this season and the record is bad and the Nats are essentially out of it come mid-July, the Nats would be foolish not to trade Max Scherzer, especially given the state of the farm system. More on that in just a bit. But I don't see the Nats trading Max, A, because I don't think they want to B, I don't think the Nats will be that buried come mid-July. The record may not be sparkling, but the state of the National League East is such that I think the Nats will still be in it come mid-July. And maybe they're very much in it. Maybe they're leading the division by mid-July. We'll see. I mean, these next few weeks are going to be rough in terms of the schedule before the All-Star break. But the Nats have been better, even though, as we saw in this four-game split at the Marlins, there still are some things to be concerned about. In terms of the Nats' other starting pitchers in the series, we on Friday show talked about the work of Joe Ross in that 7-3 win at the Marlins on Thursday night. He was terrific, seven scoreless innings, eight strikeouts. No such success for John Lester on Friday night. Lester in that 11-2 loss at the Marlins was a complete disaster. Seven runs in two into third innings. He gave up five hits, a homer, two doubles, and three singles. He issued three walks. He threw just 35 strikes versus 29 balls on 64 pitches. This was a shame because he was coming off having been quite good in his previous outing, which came in the 6 7 inning win over the New York Mets at Nationals Park on June 19th in Game 2 of a doubleheader. Two runs in six innings, six strikeouts versus seven hits, but no walks on 100 pitches. But the bottom line now for Lester is over 11 starts this season. He's got an ERA that's 499. He's got a whip of 153. Those numbers are not good. Uh, Lester's season uh, has kind of unraveled here with what he did in this game on Friday night, it you know kind of sneaks up on you because his ERA was under four for the season going into the game, but he was so bad on Friday night that his ERA now is right at the doorstep of five at 499. Patrick Corbin was an ad starter in game three, and he was so-so. Uh, this was that 3-2 loss at the Marlins on Saturday. Really a Jekyll and Hyde start, for Corbin. So his final line was three runs in six innings. On the one hand, he looked really bad in allowing a triple, a double, and two singles in a two-run Marlins first, and he then allowed a leadoff homer in the bottom of the fifth. But on the other hand, he finished with six strikeouts versus no walks. He threw 55 of his 77 pitches for strikes. Don't take that for granted because Corbin has struggled to throw strikes in some of his outings this season. And Corbin retired 16 of the final 17 Marlins batters he faced. So he looked atrocious in the first inning, but then he actually looked really good as the game went on. He came into the game, Corbin did, having been good over his previous two starts to combine three runs in 14 and a third innings on 14 strikeouts versus 12 hits and two walks. The numbers for Corbin on the season remain ugly. 15 starts, he has an ERA of 533. This off, of course, a bad 2020 for Patrick Corbin. You'd like to think, though, his season is trending in a better direction. The problem is, like, it's all relative now. I mean, Patrick Corbin is in year three of a six-year, $140 million contract. We should be far beyond the point of him having an ERA of 533, 15 starts into a season. It's one thing if the ERA is bad over, you know, three starts or five starts. 15 starts is basically half a season for a starting pitcher, right? A starting pitcher, if he stays healthy, will make, what, 32 starts over the course of a year, give or take? Corbin's at 15 starts now, and his ERA remains well above five at 533. But it's not like his outing on Sunday was a complete mess. It initially looked like the outing was going to be a mess, but he did settle down, and I do give him credit for that. Uh, Here's the bad news with an ads rotation coming out of the weekend from an availability standpoint. Eric Fetty now is on the 10-day injured list. This came out of nowhere. The Nats on Sunday put Fetty on the 10-day IL, retroactive to June 24th, with a left oblique strain that he discovered when he woke up on Thursday morning. Eric Fetty, the man above whom a perpetual black cloud exists, whether it's him getting jerked between being a starter and a reliever about a million times, Whether it's him getting COVID 19 despite having been vaccinated for COVID 19, now it's him going to bed feeling fine on Wednesday night, but then waking up on Thursday morning with a left oblique strain. And I don't have to tell you, these oblique strains can be mothers, okay? Like they don't sound that bad, but then a guy ends up missing like a month and a half because the darn thing refuses to heal. An oblique strain is one of the more stubborn injuries an athlete will ever experience. And now, Fetty, is on the 10-day IL. The corresponding roster move was the Nats recalling a reliever, Andres Machado, from AAA Rochester. But the reality is the Nats now don't have a starting pitcher for this makeup game against the Mets at Nationals Park on Monday. The Nats are going to have to go with a bullpen game, probably going to be a game started by my guy, Paolo Espino. But you already have Steven Strasburg on the 10-day IL, and who the heck knows when he's back. Now Fetty is on the 10-day IL, and the Nats don't have options. The Nationals' farm system is essentially barren in terms of realistic options for starting pitchers, for now, anyway. Like, Cade Cavalli is coming, but he's not ready just yet. In terms of, like, ready-made starting pitchers at the minor league level, guys who the Nationals feel comfortable summoning to make spot starts, the Nats don't have anybody. So it's Paolo Espino, it's maybe this guy Jeffrey Rodriguez. Like, nothing speaks to the lack of organizational pitching depth. Than the fact that the Nats aren't calling anybody up, even though Strasbourg is on the 10-day IL and Fetty is on the 10-day IL, and unless things change, the approach for now seems to be the Nats will just kind of bullpen it until they can figure something else out. Uh, this is why, again, if the Nats are bad come mid-July, they've got to trade Max Scherzer. This stuff about oh, you know, you can't—he's an all-time great. I get it. I don't care. Their farm system is in bad shape, people. They need to build the farm system back up. And what's going on here with the rotation with both Strasbourg and Fetty now on the 10-day I.L. speaks to this. The Nets don't have options. They don't have any options. They don't have anyone who the team is comfortable calling up. Think about that. What does that say about what is at the minor league level. Well, next up for the Nats is this makeup game with the National League East leading New York Mets. Just one game. That is it. Nationals Park Monday night at 7.05. Like I said, this does appear as if it'll be a bullpen game for the Nats. Presumably my homie Paolo Espino. So the secret weapon may well be on display. In terms of the Nats' bullpen in this four-game split at the Marlins, the pen was bad in games one and two, but actually really good in games three and four. So Justin Miller had major issues in the 7-3 win at the Marlins on Thursday night. Gave up three runs in the bottom of the eighth on a three-run homer by Jazz Chisholm Jr. Four Nats relievers in the 11-2 loss at the Marlins on Friday night combined to allow four runs, three earned, And five and two-thirds innings. And even that doesn't tell the entire story because Miller officially tossed two-thirds of a scoreless inning, but he allowed an inherited runner to score. My guy Paolo did give up some damage on Friday night. Two runs, one earned in two innings. Sam Clay did toss a scoreless bottom of the sixth, but Jeffrey Rodriguez allowed two runs in two innings. But then two Nats relievers in the 3-2 loss at the Marlins on Saturday combined for two scoreless innings. Austin Voth, the scoreless bottom of the seventh, Despite getting into some trouble. And Tanner Rainey, a perfect bottom of the eighth. And then three Nats relievers in a 5-1 win on Sunday afternoon, combined for three scoreless innings. Tanner Rainey, a scoreless bottom of the seventh. Austin Voth, a scoreless bottom of the eighth, and then Brad Hand, a perfect bottom of the ninth inning. Boy, has Hand been effective lately. It's maybe not always pretty, but he's getting the job done. Brad Hand now has given up just two earned runs in 16 and two-thirds innings over his last. 16 appearances. The Nats after this makeup game with the Mets have a two-game series against the Tampa Bay Rays. Game one Tuesday night at 7:05. Game two Wednesday afternoon at 405. And then after that, a big four-game series against the Los Angeles Dodgers Thursday night through Sunday midday, because Sunday is July 4th. That's the annual 11 o'clock in the morning game for the Nationals. So these four games against the Dodgers, Thursday night, 7.05, Friday night, 7.05, Saturday night, 7.15, and then Sunday morning at 11.05. So you can watch Meet the Press or Fox News Sunday and then watch the Nationals take on the Dodgers.
0: We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate
1: Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com slash blue wire. That's harrys.com slash blue wire for a $3 trial set.
2: All right, so former Washington offensive tackle Morgan Moses has found a new home. We on Friday had multiple reports that Moses has agreed on a one-year contract with the New York Jets. It is going to be very interesting to see if Rodden Rivera is proven right on Moses. The Washington football team, of course, on May 20th in a move that seemingly came out of nowhere, released Moses in yet another instance of Don Ron's godfather like baptism of fire, the removal of those who have been around for a while and are perceived to be in the way. One by one, Don Ron has eliminated those people over the last two off seasons. I am totally fine with Ron having released Moses. Ron needs to be given full latitude to implement his vision. But you can't just ignore the facts. I mean, Moses had a very good 2020 season. He, in the 2020 regular season, ranked sixth out of 40 qualified right tackles in overall grade for pro football focus at 80.6. And Moses never misses games. Six seasons as Washington started right tackle, never missed a game. Started all 96 of Washington's regular season games during that span. Started both of Washington's playoff games during That span. It remains impossible to ignore the timing of Ron's releasing of Moses. We first learned that Moses was on his way out two days before he was released. So this was May 18th when we had multiple reports that Washington had given Moses permission to seek a trade. Those reports came just three days after Saturday, May 15th, a day on which one, Washington concluded its 2020 rookie minicamp, which of course included second round rookie offensive tackle, Samuel Cosme. And two, Washington officially announced the signing of unrestricted free agent left tackle Charles Leno Jr. You combine all of that with Cornelius Lucas having stood out as a right tackle for the Chicago Bears in the 2019 season, and Washington viewed Moses as expendable. But the Cosme thing seems to be the thing. And I had a few thoughts about all of this over the weekend. And this first thought is why I do think Ron deserves a benefit of the doubt with having released Moses. Washington believing in Cosme enough to release Moses is reminiscent of Washington believing in then third round rookie Antonio Gibson enough to release running back Adrian Peterson last September 4th. There are to me a lot of parallels between the two situations. Washington releasing Adrian Peterson was surprising, just like Washington releasing Morgan Moses was. Washington released Peterson in large part because Washington had confidence in a then rookie in Antonio Gibson. Washington released Moses because Washington has confidence in a rookie in Samuel Cosme. But I think we all would agree, would we not, that Washington releasing Peterson ended up making a whole lot more sense than people thought the releasing might. The release was predicated on Ron and his coaching staff believing in Gibson. And sure enough, That belief was validated. Adrian Peterson in the 2020 regular season for the Detroit Lions rushed for 604 yards and seven touchdowns on 3.87 yards per carry. Antonio Gibson in the 2020 regular season rushed for 795 yards and 11 touchdowns on 4.68 yards per carry. Don Ron's decision was validated to say nothing of Gibson having an upside that AP no longer has because of his age. So Ron was right about releasing Peterson, Rod may well be proven right for releasing Moses. Additionally, think about this. While it can be debated whether Washington should have released Moses, what cannot be debated is that Washington's recent history, including actually much of the Bruce Allen era, features the team having been pretty good at avoiding cutting ties with players who still had something left. In other words, recent history, for whatever it's worth, features Washington having more often been right as opposed to wrong when cutting ties with players. Now, there was a time in which the opposite was true. The decade of the 2000s, so essentially talking about Dan Snyder's first decade of ownership, the Vinny Serrato era. For the fans. Yes. Hello, Vinny. Uh, That decade featured Washington parting with a number of players, who went on to do really well elsewhere, even if for just a little while. But you think about, say, quarterback Brad Johnson. Johnson was a Washington quarterback for two seasons, 1999 and 2000. He was very good in 99, during which Washington won the NFC East at 10-6, and, and then authored, incredibly, the team's lone playoff win in the history of of FedEx Field. He was not very good in the mess that was Washington's 2000 season. Dan Snyder preferred Jeff George. Johnson signed with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in the 2001 offseason. And of course, Brad Johnson ended up quarterbacking the Bucs to a Super Bowl title for the 2002 season. You think about linebacker Antonio Pierce. Washington signed Pierce as an undrafted free agent out of Arizona in 2001. He played for Washington for four seasons, 2001 through 2004, including starting all 16 games and being a highly productive linebacker for Washington defense. That was number four in the NFL in total defense per Football Outsiders DVOA metric in the 2004 season, which was the first of Greg Williams' four seasons as Washington's assistant head coach in charge of defense, but Washington allowed Pierce to leave via free agency in the 2005 offseason. He signed with the NFC East rival, New York Giants, was a starter for them in each of his five seasons with the team, 2005 through 2009, including playing in every game for the Giants in their 2007 Super Bowl championship season. How about safety Ryan Clark? Washington signed Clark as a free agent in July 2004 off him, having been waived in May of that year by his original NFL team, the Giants. Uh, Clark was a good safety for Washington for two seasons, 2004 and 2005, then was allowed to leave via free agency in Washington's debacle of a 2006 offseason. He signed with the Pittsburgh Steelers, for whom he played for eight seasons, 2006 through 2013, including winning a Super Bowl title for the 2008 season and winning AFC titles for the 2008 and 2010 seasons. Washington, of course, signed back Clark for the 2014 season, but he was terrible that season, ended up retiring after that season. How about receiver Brandon Lloyd? This one's incredible. Washington in March, 2006 traded a third round pick in the 2006 NFL draft and a fourth round pick in the 2007 NFL draft to the San Francisco 49ers for Lloyd, who was a restricted free agent. And then Washington re-signed him to a contract with $10 million in guaranteed money. That was a lot of money back then in 2006. Lloyd, over two seasons with Washington, 2006 and 2007, did next to nothing. 25 receptions and no touchdowns over 23 regular season games. I mean, he really could not have done much less than what he did over two years with Washington He became a malcontent. Washington in February 2008 released Lloyd. And then what happened? He stunningly ended up being very productive over a three-season stretch, 2010 through 2012. 2010, Lloyd for the Denver Broncos over 16 regular season games, 77 receptions for 1,448 yards and 11 touchdowns on 153 targets. 2011, Lloyd over 15 regular season games for the Broncos and St. Louis Rams, who acquired Lloyd via trade in October 2011, had 70 receptions for 966 yards and five touchdowns on 148 targets. And 2012, Lloyd over 16 regular season games for the New England Patriots had 74 receptions for 911 yards and four touchdowns on 131 targets. He basically could not have been worse over his two seasons with Washington, and then he erupted into being a highly productive receiver over a three-season stretch, 2010 through 2012. And then one more for you, corner Walt Harris. Do you remember Walt Harris? Washington signed Harris as a free agent in March 2004. He played for Washington for two seasons, 2004 in 2005, including being a starter for that 2005 defense, which finished number four in the NFL in total defense per football outsiders DVOA metric. But Washington allowed Harris to leave via free agency. And again, the team's debacle of a 2006 offseason. He signed with the San Francisco 49ers for whom he had 15 interceptions over the next three regular seasons, 2006 through 2008. So yeah, man, In that decade of the aughts, in that initial decade of the Donnie, a number of guys with whom Washington parted ways ended up doing quite well elsewhere. But Washington, beginning with the 2010s, became much better at knowing when to part with players, even though Washington did not do very well in terms of wins and losses in the 2010s. Here are some notable, non regrettable guys who have been released, traded, or allowed to leave via free agency over the last 10 fully completed off-seasons. So the 2011 off-season through the 2020 off-season, okay? 2011 off-season, Washington traded quarterback Donovan McNabb to the Minnesota Vikings and traded defensive lineman Albert Hainsworth to the New England Patriots. The 2011 season ended up being the final season in In both McNabb's and Hainsworth's careers, Mike Shanahan was completely vindicated with how he handled McNabb and Hainsworth in that 2010 season with what ended up happening with each guy. As you may recall, there were a lot of both McNabb and Hainsworth defenders. In that 2010 season, what ended up happening with each guy certified the way Uncle Mike handled each guy in that 2010 season. The 2015 offseason, Washington allowed edge rusher Brian Arakpo to sign with the Tennessee Titans and released two defensive linemen, Barry Cofield and Stephen Bowen. Arakpo was a good player for the Titans over his first three seasons with the team, 2015 through 2017. So if you want to say that Washington made a mistake in not re-signing Arakpo, fine, but Arakpo with the Titans, as was the case with Washington, was a good player, but he was not a great player. And keep in mind, Washington replaced Arakpo with another good but not great player and a much cheaper player in Preston Smith, and also a far more durable player in Preston Smith. As for Cofield and Bowen, the 2015 season ended up being the final season in both Cofield's and Bowen's career. So, no regret and releasing those two guys. And I don't think there's regret in not re-signing Arakpo. The 2017 offseason, Washington allowed receiver Pierre Garçon to sign with the San Francisco 49ers and allowed receiver Deshaun Jackson and defensive lineman Chris Baker to sign with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Now, I remember this very clearly. All three guys left on the same day, which was the first day of the 2017-2018 league year. March 9th, 2017, which also was the day on which Washington fired Scott McLuhan. A lot was made of that being a disastrous day for Washington, and people really went nuts over Pierre, Deshaun, and Baker all leaving. Uh yeah, about that. Garcon played in a total of just 16 regular season games over the 2017 and 2018 seasons for the San Francisco 49ers due to injury, has been out of the NFL ever since. Deshaun in the 2021 season will be on his third team since leaving Washington. He was with the Bucs 2017 and 2018, Philadelphia Eagles 2019 and 2020, and will be with the Los Angeles Rams, at least to begin this upcoming season. And then Chris Baker incredibly lasted for just one season with the Bucs and never played in an NFL regular season game again. For all of the outrage, for all of the overreaction to Pierre, Deshaun, and Baker leaving on the same day, March 9, 2017, you tell me, now more than four years later, do you regret Washington not re-signing any of those guys? Because I sure don't. 2018 offseason, Washington allowed half of its 2014 draft class to leave via free agency. Do you remember this? The team allowed linebacker Trent Murphy to sign with the Buffalo Bills, allowed center Spencer Long to sign with the New York Jets, allowed corner Bashad Breland ultimately to sign with the Green Bay Packers, and allowed receiver Ryan Grant ultimately to sign with the Indianapolis Colts. I say ultimately in the cases of Breland and Grant because Breland's deal with the Packers came after he had agreed on a deal with Ron Rivera's Carolina Panthers but failed a physical. Grant's deal with the Colts came after he agreed on a deal with the Baltimore Ravens, but failed their physical. Murphy, look, he was good for a 2019 Bills defense that was good. But as we speak here on this Monday, Trent Murphy remains a free agent. Uh, He is yet to be signed by anyone this offseason. Long was released after just one season with the Jets, and he ended up retiring in August 2020. Grant didn't play in the 2020 season of having not done much In the 2018 and 2019 season. So I don't regret Washington not keeping any of those guys. I'll get to Breland in just a bit. 2019 offseason, Washington allowed edge rusher Preston Smith to sign with the Green Bay Packers. Now, a lot was made in the 2019 season of Preston having a big season. He had 12 sacks over 16 regular season games in his first season with the Pack, of having totaled just 24 and a half sacks over 64 regular season games over four seasons with Washington. But did you look at what Preston did this past season? Uh, Preston Smith in the 2020 regular season, just four sacks over 16 games. Now, he still has never missed a game over six NFL seasons. He has been exceptionally durable. But his production for the Packers dipped big time last season as compared to where the production was at in the 2019 season and that's not just from a sacks perspective if you look at Preston Smith through the prism of pressures his quarterback pressures per sport radar plummeted from 34 in the 2019 regular season to 16 in the 2020 regular season sometimes a guy's sack total can dip down even though the pressures remain more or less the same and in that case it's just really a function of bad luck that you don't get as many sacks, or at least in part a function of bad luck. In Preston Smith's case, he quantifiably was not pressuring quarterbacks with nearly the success in the 2020 regular season as he had in the 2019 regular season. And then last offseason, the 2020 offseason, Don Ron's first offseason as the man running things for Washington in the coach-centric approach. Washington released corner Josh Norman, released safety Monte Nicholson, released receiver Paul Richardson. Do you regret any of those releases? I don't. Washington traded corner Quinton Dunbar. Do you regret that? I don't. Washington last summer released two running backs in Darius Geis and Adrian Peterson for two very different reasons. Do you regret either of those releases? I don't. I mean, you look at all those and things can certainly change as time goes on. But for now, do you as a Washington fan regret Ron Rivera cutting ties with any of those guys? Because I do not. Now, all of this isn't to say that Washington has batted a thousand over the last ten fully completed off seasons in terms of cutting ties with guys. There are some names that stand out. Like you think about corner Carlos Rogers. Washington took Rogers with the number nine pick in the two thousand five NFL Draft out of Auburn. He was a decent corner for Washington for six seasons, two thousand five through two thousand ten, but he had a maddening problem of dropping potential interceptions. Right? We all remember all of the drop picks by Los over his six seasons with Washington. He, in the 2011 offseason, signed with the San Francisco 49ers, and in just the 2011 regular season, had six interceptions. I'll never forget this. This was incredible. Rodgers leaves Washington his first season with the 49ers. He has six picks of having totaled eight interceptions over his six regular seasons with Washington. Uh, How about edge rusher Lorenzo Alexander? Washington signed Alexander as an undrafted free agent at a Cal. He played for Washington for six seasons, 2007 through 2012. He was a special teams ace. He was a jack of all trades. He played a bunch of positions. He was a great locker room presence. Everyone loved Lorenzo Alexander. Washington allowed Alexander to leave via free agency in the 2013 offseason. He went on to play for seven more seasons, 2013 through 2019, including having 12 and a half sacks for the Buffalo Bills in the 2016 regular season, and then six and a half sacks for the Bills in the 2018 regular season. Here's a name that may surprise you. Receiver Andre Roberts. Washington signed Roberts as a free agent in the 2014 offseason. He was a flop for Washington over two seasons. 2014 and 2015 including having a number of drops he was Andre Droppers okay but Roberts has excelled as a punt returner and kickoff returner over the last 5 seasons now 2016 through 2020 and for a bunch of teams uh Detroit Lions in 2016 Atlanta Falcons in 2017 New York Jets in 2018 Buffalo Bills in 2019 and 2020 Roberts has bounced around the NFL to be sure but he has been among the best return men in the NFL for years now. In fact, Andre Roberts was the Associated Press's all-pro first-team kickoff returner for the 2018 season. So he really has thrived since leaving Washington, believe it or not. Uh, Cover your ears for this next name. Earmuffs for this next name. Quarterback Kirk Cousins. I'm a little bit more process-oriented. Yes. Hello, Kirk. There is no need to rehash the Kirk Cousins saga, just understand that he has never missed a game since becoming a starting quarterback, beginning with the 2015 season. And old Kirky over the last six seasons. So over his time as a QB one, either for Washington or the Minnesota Vikings has the ninth highest passing grade for pro football focus among qualified quarterbacks. I still believe, and I know more than a few of you believe that things would be a lot different for Washington had Bruce Allen not butchered the Kirk situation, as old Brucifer did. Corner Bashad Breeland. Here now we arrive at old Breeland. There's definite gray area with Bashad Breeland, or Bashard, as uh, Jay Gruden used to call him. I I don't kill Washington for not re-signing Breeland, especially given that he failed his physical with Ron Rivera's Carolina Panthers in that 2018 offseason. And Breeland only lasted for one season with his next team, the Green Bay Packers. But you do have to say that Breland has been a starter for the Kansas City Chiefs in their back-to-back AFC championship seasons of the last two years, including that 2019 Super Bowl winning season. So, you know, Breland's a guy who has done well, all things considered, since leaving Washington. Uh receiver Jamison Crowder. Again, I don't blame Washington for not re signing Crowder, but he has done pretty well since leaving Washington. Washington took Crowder in the fourth round. Of the 2015 NFL Draft added Duke. He was terrific over his first two seasons with Washington, 2015 and 2016. But then came the next two seasons. 2017 season, Crowder was guilty of way too many drops. You may remember in that 2017 season, a 38-30 Washington loss to the Minnesota Vikings at FedEx Field in Week 10. Crowder was brutal in that game. He had perhaps as many as four drops in that game. And then in the 2018 season, Crowder missed seven consecutive games due to an ankle injury suffered in that disastrous 43-19 loss at the New Orleans Saints on Monday Night Football in Week 5. And so Washington allowed Crowder to leave via free agency in the 2019 offseason. I had no problem with that. He signed with the New York Jets, and Crowder over his first two seasons with the Jets has actually done pretty well. 2019 regular season, 78 receptions for 833 yards and six touchdowns on 122 targets over 16 games. This past regular season, 59 receptions for 699 yards and six touchdowns on 89 targets over 12 games. He did miss four games due to injury. But those numbers, I think, are especially impressive when you consider the brutal quarterback play that the Jets have had these last two seasons with Sam Darnold. So those, to me, are the most regrettable departures for Washington over the last decade or so. And even with those, there are caveats and there is context that make the departures not look nearly as bad. I mean, for the most part, I think Washington's done a good job over the last 10 fully completed off-seasons of knowing when to let guys go. I'm not including, by the way, Trent Williams in any of this. I don't count Trent's departure as a regrettable departure, even though he killed it with the San Francisco 49ers this past season, because Trent left Washington with no choice but to trade him due to his ridiculous money demands. The problem with the Trent saga is that Washington, thanks to Bruce Allen, ended up not trading Trent until way past the point of getting commensurate value for him. But he 100% needed to be traded off his holdout that included plenty of lying because he wanted more guaranteed money, even though he had been paid more money than any player in Washington history. And I will always love how Ron Rivera handled Trent in terms of the money demands. February 27th, 2020, we had multiple reports saying that Trent had told Washington that he wanted either a new contract from the team or to be traded. And NFL insiders Mike Garafolo and Ian Rappaport of NFL Network and NFL.com reported that Washington wasn't even interested in talking about an extension with Trent at the time. As Garafolo said in a Twitter video regarding Washington doing an extension for Trent, quote, at the very least, the impression we're getting is that that's pushed to the back burner, end quote. You see, Trent tried to hold Ron hostage. Trent tried to jack up Ron. And Don Ron said, "Mm, no, pal, screw you. Okay, do you remember what Ron said about Quentin Dunbar wanting a contract extension? That's what Ron said about Trent wanting a new contract. He was looking for something that we weren't prepared to give. That's what Ron said about Trent wanting a new contract. He was looking for something that we weren't prepared to give. Yes, exactly. Trent tried to back Ron into a corner and Ron punched Trent right in the mouth and told him to get lost. And that was 100% the right way to play that. And of course, Washington got pennies on the dollar for Trent, a 2020 fifth round pick and a 2021 third round pick from the San Francisco 49ers. But the blame for that goes to Bruce, not Ron. And yes, Trent did have a very good 2020 season for the Niners, played in 14 games, registered an overall grade for pro football focus of 91.9, which is outstanding. But if recent history is any indication, there's a good chance that we will not look back upon Washington releasing one of Trent's buddies, Morgan Moses, with regret. And even if Moses does do well with the Jets, if Samuel Cosme this season ends up being the player that Ron and the coaching staff pretty clearly seem to think that Cosme will be, there will be No regret. So, where do things stand when it comes to the Wizards' head coaching search? The damn Washington Wizards! Yes, exactly. NBA head coaching vacancies are filling up. The Wizards seem to be taking their time, which is fine. Uh, The three notable developments/slash reports from the weekend: one, Los Angeles Clippers assistant coach Chauncey Billups appears to be off the market. ESPN NBA insider Adrian Wojnarowski on June 18th reported that Billups had drawn interest from the Wizards for their head coaching vacancy, but multiple reports emerged on Friday night that the Portland Trailblazers were working to finalize the hiring of Billups as their head coach. Second item, ESPN NBA insider Brian Winhorst, in an installment of the Brian Winhorst and the Hoop Collective podcast that dropped on Friday, June 25th, said, quote, watch Sam Cassell and Wes Unseld as two of the leading candidates in Washington And, quote, not exactly a jaw-dropper. Those two names have come up a bunch, but it's worth noting someone as plugged in as Windhorst is saying Cassell and Unseld are two names to be mindful of when it comes to the Wizards' head coaching vacancy. And then item number three, NBA insider Mark Stein on Saturday night reported that the Wizards and Orlando Magic have requested permission to interview Dallas Mavericks assistant coach Jamal Mosley. So a few thoughts here. It does seem as if the Wizards are going to hire an NBA assistant coach to be the team's next head coach. You know, the idea of the Wizards hiring a Rick Carlisle ain't happening. Uh, Carlisle obviously getting the job with the Indiana Pacers, but it sure seems like the assistant coach route is the route that the Wizards are going to end up taking here. Cassell is someone who gets a ton of attention like it's almost comical to me how everyone is so sure that Sam Cassell is going to be the next Pat Riley and look there's a lot to like about Sam Cassell I just kind of find it funny how everyone is so adamant that Sam Cassell is going to be the greatest head coach in the history of head coaches Uh, he is a Philadelphia 76ers assistant coach he has a lot of ties to this area including having been an assistant coach for the Wizards for five seasons 2009-2010 through 2013, 2014. And truth be told, there is a lot to like about Sam Cassell. He was a very competitive, fiery player. He's a guy who has won. He is someone who has paid his dues as an assistant head coach. Like I said, assistant for the Wizards for five seasons. He then was an assistant coach for the Los Angeles Clippers for six seasons 2014, 2015, through 2019, 2020. He was hired by the 76ers as an assistant coach. This past November. So he's been an assistant on some good teams. He's been an assistant on a number of playoff teams. He's known as having a great personality, someone who can relate to the superstar player. So I'm not like anti-Sam Cassell. Again, I just find it funny how everyone is so sure that Sam Cassell is going to be the next great thing when so often we have no idea about NBA assistant coaches and who's responsible for what. The guy who intrigues me the most is Wes Unsell Jr. And the more I read about Wes Unsell Jr., the more I dig into Wes Unsell Jr., the more that I like. So he is the Denver Nuggets associate head coach. The fact that he is Wes Unsell Jr. does not matter to me. I don't care that his dad was Wes Unsell. That's a nice thing. I mean, it doesn't work against him. But you know, whether his name is Wes Unsell Jr. or Wes Slabinski Jr., don't matter. His resume is impressive. Denver Post Nuggets insider Mike Singer on June 16th, reported that Unseld was, quote, expected to be in the mix for the Washington job, end quote, per a league source. Wizards insider Chase Hughes of NBC Sports Washington confirmed that report on June 17th. And we had what Winhorst said in that installment of his podcast that dropped on Friday. Again, watch Sam Cassell and Wes Unseld as two of the leading candidates in Washington. So here's what you like about Wes Unseld Jr., He has been an assistant for the Nuggets for six seasons, 2015-2016 through 2020-2021. He in December 2020 was promoted to associate head coach. Wes Unsell Jr., though, oversees the Nuggets defensive game plans. What I have said above everything when it comes to the Wizards next head coach is I want someone who can get the Wizards To play defense at a high level. It's time for the Wizards to ascend to a level of defense that is, if not championship caliber, then let's say conference finals caliber. The days of the Wizards being bottom half of the NBA every season in defensive rating have got to stop. Good defense correlates with high performance in the NBA playoffs. The Wizards just can't keep being about scoring a bunch of points. The scoring is great, But you've got to be able to stop people. And too often for too long, the Wizards haven't been able to stop anybody. Well, take a listen to the Nuggets rankings in defensive rating each of the last three regular seasons. And defensive rating is points allowed per 100 possessions per NBA.com. 2018-2019, 10th. 2019-2020, 16th. Okay, that's not great. 2020-2021, 11th. These are not necessarily spectacular ratings, but these are solid to very good ratings. I mean, top 10 in 2018, 2019, just outside the top 10 in 2020, 2021. If Unseld can come here and get the Wizards to play defense, I'm on board. Like that by itself to me is a reason to hire Wes Unseld Jr. as the Wizards' next head coach, to say nothing of some other things too. Wes Unseld Jr. spent 13 seasons with the Wizards. He knows the lay of the land with this organization. He knows the potential pitfalls with this organization. Unseld was an assistant coach for the Wizards for six seasons, 2005-2006 through 2010-2011. He began his NBA career in 1997, just four days after graduating from John Hopkins University as a professional and college scout for the Wizards, So well-connected to the organization, not just because of his pops, but because Wes Jr. has put in the time. He's done some very good things with the Nuggets. And to me, Wes Unsell Jr. is the guy who just on the surface here, I mean, I don't claim to know these people personally, but on the surface, I think Wes Unsell Jr. makes the most sense because he can potentially get the Wizards to excel at the thing that the team hasn't come close to excelling in, in years. And that is Playing defense. Now, when it comes to this guy, Jamal Mosley, so Jamal Mosley is a Dallas Mavericks assistant coach. He did not get the Mavericks head coaching job, which reportedly is going to the former Mavericks star, Jason Kidd, who keeps getting NBA head coaching jobs despite not being that impressive as an NBA head coach. But we've seen Kidd right with the Brooklyn Nets, with the Milwaukee Bucks. It's looking like we're now going to see him with the Dallas Mavericks. So some things to be mindful of with Jamal Mosley. He does have a very good reputation. ESPN NBA insider Tim McMahon in June 2020 tweeted the following, quote, Jamal Mosley, the Mavs defensive coordinator, excels at building relationships with players. He's the coach who works with Luka Doncic the most, including putting him through his pregame routine end quote. Mosley was hired by the Mavs in July 2014, became their defensive coordinator beginning with the 2018-2019 season. Per the Mavericks official site, Mosley is, quote, in charge of planning the defense's strategy for every game, end quote. So as I was talking about with West Jr., Jamal Mosley could maybe be someone who gets the Wizards to be good defensively. I would point out, though, The Mavericks rankings in defensive rating have not been anything special over the last three seasons, 2018, 2019, 18th, 2019, 2020, 18th, 2020, 2021, 21st. So the Mavericks in terms of defensive rating, again, points allowed per 100 possessions per NBA.com in each of the last three regular seasons are working forwards here. 18, 18, 21. I mean, I don't know about you. That does not uh, blow my socks off. So, I don't know, man. To me, Wes Sunsell Jr. is still the guy who stands out the most. Now, numbers aren't everything. Statistical rankings aren't everything. Of course, it's going to matter a ton how each candidate relates to the likes of a Bradley Beal, a Russell Westbrook, etc., assuming those guys are still going to be the two main guys on the Wizards this coming season. But I really do want the Wizards to hire a head coach who can get this team to D-up, okay?, Because that hasn't happened with any kind of frequency, truth be told, since Randy Whitman was the Wizards head coach. And if the Wizards are ever going to make it past a second round, remember the Wizards have not advanced past the second round of the NBA playoffs since nineteen seventy nine. If the Wizards are ever to get back to the conference finals, the Wizards have got to get better defensively. I want their next head coach, whoever that is, to be someone who can elevate the Wizards appreciably defensively. Washington Wizards. Exactly. The losing continued for the Orioles over the weekend, although at least the streak now is over. The O's lost three of four games to the Toronto Blue Jays in Buffalo. 9 nothing loss on Thursday night, 6-5-10 inning win on Friday night, 12-4 loss on Saturday, 5-2 loss on Sunday afternoon. The O's now are an American League worst 24 and 54 with a major League worst run differential of minus 124. But the streak is over. The Orioles 6-5 10 inning win over the Blue Jays in Buffalo on Friday night ended the Orioles franchise record 20 game road losing streak. So thankfully, we no longer have to reference that. Just like, by the way, the Arizona Diamondbacks no longer have to reference their Major League record road losing streak because the Diamondbacks snapped their Major League record 24-game road losing streak with a 10-1 win at the San Diego Padres on Saturday night. How about that? The Orioles snapped their franchise record road losing streak on Friday night. The Diamondbacks snapped their Major League record road losing streak on Saturday night. Which team is worse, the Orioles or the Diamondbacks? Compare and contrast. That would be a great essay question. Anyway, some notable items for the O's over the weekend. We'll deal with things sequentially with the starting pitching. So Dean Kramer has been demoted. We, on Friday's installment of the podcast, talked about how atrocious Kramer was in his outing on Thursday night. That 9 nothing loss to the Blue Jays in Buffalo. Kramer in that game gave up six runs, recorded just one out. He issued five walks. He gave up a grand slam. He gave up an RBI single. The O's on Friday optioned Kramer to AAA Norfolk, marking a second demotion for him this season. The O's had optioned Kramer to Norfolk on May 26 and then recalled him on June 14th. Among the other moves announced by the O's on Friday was them designating reliever Mickey Janis for assignment. Remember we talked about Janice last week, this knuckleballer age 33 season taken by the Tampa Bay Rays in the 44th round of the 2010 MLB draft. He had never pitched in a major league game until making his major league debut and that Orioles 13 nothing loss to the Houston Astros at Oriole Park at Camden Yards last Wednesday night. Janice in that game allowing seven runs in three and a third innings on eight hits, including three home runs. Andy issued four walks. The O's ended up DFAing Janice on Friday. So much for all of the good feeling off the O's last Tuesday, selecting the contract of Janice from AAA Norfolk. Boy, did all of that good feeling dissipate. Now, Janice has cleared waivers. The O's announced this on Sunday. He has been assigned outright. To AAA Norfolk. But yeah, that didn't last long. Uh, Janice being in the good graces of the organization. Also, by the way, the O's announcing on Friday that catcher Chance Sisko has been claimed off waivers by the New York Mets off Cisco having been DFA'd recently. But yeah, Kramer demoted to AAA Norfolk. 12 starts for Kramer at the major league level this season. He has an ERA of 725 and a whip of 161. Some of these numbers for these Orioles starting pitchers this season are frightening. Now, nobody has numbers more frightening than Matt Harvey's, although Harvey actually did not suck over the weekend. Harvey started game two of the series, the 6-5 10 inning win over the Blue Jays in Buffalo on Friday night. Three runs in five and two thirds innings with the way that things have gone for Harvey this season. That's actually a victory. Now he did give up two homers, a triple and three singles, and he only recorded two strikeouts. So it's all relative, man. But Harvey also only issued one walk and he lasted for at least five full innings in the start for the first time in In 10 starts, he entered the game having allowed 40 earned runs in 27 and a third innings over his previous eight starts. So for him to only give up three runs in five and two thirds innings on Friday night, that's a good job, again, relatively speaking. But then came Keegan Aiken in Game 3, the 12-4 loss at the Blue Jays in Buffalo on Saturday. Six runs in four and third innings. He gave up seven hits, including two homers, three doubles, and two singles. He issued a walk. He recorded just three strikeouts on 82 pitches. A fourth consecutive bad start for Keegan Aiken. Dean Kramer and Keegan Aiken, two young pitchers who are supposed to be two potential building blocks. Still may be. I'm not writing either guy off, but man, has each guy been really bad so far this year. Aiken is just in a rut right now. Like I said, four straight bad starts, 10-2 loss to the Houston Astros at Camden Yards on Monday night, June 21st. Five runs in four innings. 8-7 loss at the Cleveland Indians on June 16th. Eight runs in five and two-thirds innings. Four-two loss at the Tampa Bay Rays on June 11, three runs in four innings. I mean, it just has not been good for Keegan Aiken for a while here. And then you had Jorge Lopez in Game Four, the 5-2 loss to the Blue Jays in Buffalo on Sunday afternoon. Lopez got wrecked in this game, five runs in four and two-thirds innings on 10 hits and four walks. Versus two strikeouts on 100 pitches. The 10 hits were three doubles and seven singles. And so Lopez on the season now, an ERA of 592, a whip of 155 over 16 starts. Like I said, some of these numbers for Orioles starting pitchers are frightening so far this year, whether you're talking Matt Harvey or Dean Kramer, or Keegan Aiken, or Jorge Lopez. The only starter with good-looking numbers is John Means, and he hasn't pissed in, it feels like, forever right now with him being on the 10-day injured list. Uh, In terms of Orioles position players, a few things here. So Cedric Mullins was good again, in games two and three, especially in this series. Starting center fielder and number one batter for the Orioles. 6-5, 10-inning win over the Blue Jays in Buffalo on Friday night. Mullins, a single in the Orioles' one-run third, a leadoff six-pitch walk in the Orioles' four-run eighth and a one-out double in the top of the ninth. And then Mullins in the 12 loss on Saturday, a two-out, two-run double in the Orioles' four-run seventh inning. Austin Hayes, starting right fielder and number six batter in the 10-inning win on Friday night. One-out game-tying two-run double in the Orioles' four-run eighth and two-out-five pitch walk in the top of the fourth. And then Hayes as a starting left fielder and number five batter in the 12-4 loss on Saturday. Two singles, and he had another standout defensive play. Good-looking diving catch of a liner off the bat of Santiago Espinal for the first-out in the bottom of the seventh inning. There was an injury suffered by the Orioles over the weekend. Shortstop Freddie Galvis in the 12-4 loss on Saturday got injured running to first base on a first pitch bun single. The O's on Sunday putting Galvis on the 10-day injured list with a right quadricep strain. Galvis has been just okay so far this year. His OPS for the season is just 720. I mean, that's definitely nothing special. He's been about a league average batter, uh, minus one defensive run save for Galvis at shortstop on the year. And a happy item, we on Saturday learned that Trey Mancini will be participating in the Home Run Derby at Coors Field in Denver on Monday night, July 12th, during All-Star Week. So a feel-good story, clearly, with Mancini having missed all of the 2020 season due to colon cancer and having been a staple in the Orioles lineup so far this season and overall having a good season. His numbers have come down lately, but Trey Mancini has still been one of the great stories in Major League Baseball on the year. I still say the Orioles should very much be on board with trading away Mancini this season or this coming offseason, but that doesn't take away from the fact that Mancini has been a really good story. Everyone loves a guy. And uh, he 100% should be in that home run derby. I would love to see the derby come down to Mancini and Kyle Schwarber. Little DMV flavor in the All-Star Home Run Derby, right? Mancini and Schwarber battling it out in the final round. That would be nice to see. Next up for the Orioles, a six-game road trip. What will not be nice to see is especially the first series of that road trip. Three games for the O's at the American League-leading Houston Astros, who slaughtered the O's in a three-game sweep at Oriole Park at Camden Yards last week, then an off day on Thursday, and then a three-game series at the Los Angeles Angels, who, again, are not very good this season. No team weighs superstar players quite like the Angels. Mike Trout, Shohei Otani, Anthony Rendon, even though he's not having a very good season, but you name him, the Angels have wasted him. The Angels are just 37 and 40, on the season with a run differential of minus 32, how does that happen with all of the talent on that team? The Angels are bad, of course. They're not as bad as the Orioles. All right, my friends, that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me the. Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. And so the vacay is underway. Have a great rest of your Monday. Have an excellent Tuesday. And I'll talk to you on Wednesday. He was looking for something that we weren't prepared to give.